This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. And we are back. We are here. We are present. We're in tune with you for another week of films and chatter. How are you, <laughs> Danielle? I'm doing all right. I've, I've bathed. I, um, I shaved my legs this week, which... It's not something I do often, even pre-pandemic. I don't give a fuck. Um, but... <laughs> What was weird about this time is that I guess it had been a while because after I shaved my legs, I cro- I was sitting down and I crossed my legs and my legs like slipped off Oops. of each other. Yes. And I was like, oh, there's no friction. I took the friction off. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that's where I am. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. It's so interesting that we come to this. We come to these microphones every week and I know more and more about <laughs> deodorant. <laughs> Razor situations, dump situations. I mean, I mean, look, I gotta be me, and me is all disgusting fluids. Apparently, that's like my <laughs> my life is disgusting bodily. The 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 annals of history. This is the documentation of my my bodily decay. I love it. I love that we're gonna we have like a living document. And you're like, I also love how you're like, oh, I went and like frolicked with some wild horses, and I'm like, I took a bath. <laughs> this is where we are at this point in our lives (laughs) listen we all know social media is a farce you see me with wild horses but i'm also stewing in my own disgusting filth almost every day so well this brings up a good point though that's something i actually wanted to talk to you about is that um there has been a shift there's been a cultural shift that I'm hoping you can help walk with me through. Okay, yeah. This one especially. Like, when did we start calling sweatpants joggers? Huh. Because they are not joggers. One, they're not the kind of pants that you see most people jogging in because they're a little heavy and hot. Okay. But my main point of contention with it is that I don't put on that style of pant if I'm going to move. Those are pure lounger. That is like true sweatpant. The name says it all. I'm going to sit in these and sweat. So speaking of like stewing in your own juices, why are we calling them joggers? Well, let me ask you this. Are joggers simply pants in the sweatpants style, but aren't made of the sweatpant material? Or are they actually calling sweatpants joggers? They are calling sweatpants joggers. Our own merch and our own merch. We call sweatpants joggers. Huh. Yeah, that is true. We're part of the problem. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's weird. Now, I wonder if it's because. So I'm thinking, okay, traditional sweatpants. The sweatpants that we had when we were growing up for gym were made of sweatpant material. 
And they just had a little, the only thing that I recognized about them was that they had like a drawstring waist. Yes. And a light, maybe a light elastic at the ankle. Yes. Okay. I notice now they have sweatpants that have a tapered, more of a tapered ankle. And I always thought that that's what they were calling joggers, right? That joggers were basically like a new pant that was like a retro style. It was like, oh, we're bringing back 80 sweatpants. We're making them even more obnoxious. And then we're just going to call them something different. But I actually think you're right. I actually think the entire term is now joggers and not exactly. just a spinoff of the sweatpant, if you know what I mean. It's been usurped by the rebranding. Who did that? Who's responsible Who for that? this? Well, let me ask you this. Is it is joggers? Where does that come from? Is that a British thing? You know how like British people call sneakers trainers? Right. Is that where joggers came from? I watch a lot of British TV and I've never heard a British character or even a British person say joggers, because first of all, I think they have too much self-respect to wear them. Huh. But second of all, they're wearing black jeans. That's what they wear <laughs> in England because they're cool. They're cigarette pants and black yeah. jeans. That's all they got. But I don't think it is. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm very curious and I'm always eager to blame things on men. So I want to know what man came up with this. Because that is purely a, it's purely a decision that seemed to have made from market from a marketing point of view and not a realistic lived experience point of view. Because anyone who's worn sweatpants knows to call them joggers is offensive almost. Well, you know, part of me is like, did somebody think that the term sweatpants was like too slothful or slovenly like people yeah were like ew i don't like saying the word sweat because it means that we're human beings and we have bodily fluids and i don't want to remind people that they're doing that uh almost all the time <laughs> let's call them something much more <laughs> chic you know like joggers denoting health you know it's too aspirational it's too aspirational and it's like when kentucky fried chicken changed their name to kfc like we know it's still fried we're still gonna eat it even though it's fried you can't fool us around the like up and down like that. We, you, you're not fooling us. It's an aspirational assignation that I refuse. My sweatpants are sweatpants. My sweat shorts are sweat shorts. Well, yeah. And like that bothers me now because I want to know <laughs> where did the term come from? From whom did it come? Mm -hmm. But also, why has there suddenly been a change? In how we are addressing these pants. And, and why fine. why is it no longer sweatpant? Why is it jogger? Why are we going from one vision to a new vision? And they, they were fine as is. They didn't need aspiration. They existed in the state they were in for decades <sighs> as a way of explaining what they were. They were a perfect garment as is. And now we've just gone and added this layer of rebranding to them. They didn't need. So what are you saying then? Are you are you saying that you refuse to call them joggers? Are are you like looking for a solution to this issue? Because I'm calling it an issue. That's what this is. <laughs> yes and yes. I've I've never called them joggers, and I won't. And I also want to know how can we culturally stop this train? And I think we're all going to need to do it together. Okay. But I'm also eager to find out where did this issue start? 
Is there a company? Is there is it like when Juicy was a thing and people used to be like, grab my Juicy pants or whatever, which, again, was more suitable to the conversation than joggers. Yeah. Juicy also denotes what's going on in there when you're wearing these pants. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would rather go back to Juicy than go forward to joggers. <laughs> You know, I I remember the rise and fall of the Juicy Couture sweatsuit. Velour. Velour. (laughs) Um, It's very Fergalicious to me, which I I was definitely in the Fergie camp. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I've I've quoted Fergie on this podcast. More than anyone on this podcast. You've (laughs) quoted Fergie more than like Peter Bogdanovich on this film (laughs) podcast. Let it be written in the history books that I have quoted Fergie more than I've quoted Peter Bogdanovich on I Saw What You Did. Um, But yeah, no, I and to me, like that was never my look for so many reasons. I just couldn't pull it off. Couldn't really pull off the because it's tight. It's a tight look. Couldn't do a tight sweatsuit. Uh, And velour was very not. It's not flattering for me. It is a non-flattering, non-breathable to a terrifying degree type of fabric. And again, even Juicy should not have fucked with the sweatsuit. But I appreciated that more than joggers for some reason. Yeah, I'll tell you right now, if somebody presents me, if I'm in like um, a test, what do you call those like (laughs) those like marketing research tests where (laughs) they they play the the trick on you, which is like, we're going to give you like a placebo. We're going to give you the same product, but call it something different. So if somebody presented me with a juicy couture velour sweatsuit, I'd be like, and what is your likelihood? I'd probably give it very, very likely. But then if somebody gave me joggers, same same outfit, but just called it joggers. Swat them to the ground. No, definitely would not be interested. Swatting them to the ground. It is true. It's the term. It's the term. Is it the double G? What's going on? Well, this is also where like I feel again like this is part of my my aging process, because I remember when my my grandmother and grandfather always called my jeans dungarees. And I was like, what the fuck? Kind of like they used to go to Virginia in the summers and work on their family's farm. And I'm like, is this like a farm thing where you only wore dungarees when you were doing work? <laughs> like, Is that what this is? Like you went from Harlem to Virginia and suddenly like you don't wear dungarees in the, st- in the streets of the city. You only wear them when you're like milking a cow. So now you have to call them dungarees forever. <laughs> And I don't want joggers to go that way. I don't want to be the person looking at my niece or nephew and being like, hey, cool sweatpants. And they're like, oh, those are joggers, whatever, farm lady. And I'm like, I've never even been to Virginia or a farm. Well, but you, sweat, you sweated in those pants. It's not as if Thank you were you. like calling it like, you know, something fantastical that made no sense. It's the it's the practical purpose. And I love that about them. I think that's what makes me so upset about this topic, because, you know, one, I have the time clearly to think about this. (laughs) And two, I'm just upset because they were perfect as is. We didn't need anything from them. They didn't need anything from us. They existed purely for comfort. And now we're putting an active label on them that doesn't belong. They're taking the comfort out of the garment. And I don't like that. Yeah, it's basically taking it from a passive to an active Thank you. Uh, position. And yeah, I think I honestly do think it is 
American marketing. Once again, mm-hmm. oh, that damn Ameri- American marketing where they've taken something that's perfectly fine and like zhuzhed it up to make it more appealing. And, you know, it's kind of like how we used to just call them sweat clothes. Like, do you know, you got your gym clothes in that bag. Yes. Uh, and now it's athleisure. Uh, uh. But I will say, too, that they're athleisure. I mean, we got to get a we should get like an actual fashion person on this podcast to like because I think I I know at least I have no business talking about this and you know I, I won't speak for you entirely but I'm like what am I even talking about when I'm talking about clothes oh that's my whole life you know I'm wearing those four cardigans and I have been for a very long time so I don't know anything about fashion trends cultural shifts and fashion trends um but like i really do think the athleisure thing came from just sort of like a hey we're gonna take these gym clothes that you used to fuck around in and we're just gonna make them higher price points and we're just gonna call it something different so exactly i think that like the term is there's the bougified term (laughs) and real real motherfuckers like you and i we know it's gym clothes and we know it's sweatpants. And it, it shall be forever and ever. Amen. I am not <laughs> buying into your $90 VIP sweatpants just because you put like a fucking pantyhose panel in them around the knee, which is something else I could go off on for decades. Oh Why does every legging now have like breathing panels in them? No. Like I get it for the workout side of it, but it's like the placement of them. Like if you're really going to put some like pantyhose style breathing pattern in a spandex legging or short you got to put them in the ass or you got to put them in the front that's the only place we need it my knees have never need to be aired out a day in my life i will tell you as somebody who was going to soul cycle two times a week (laughs) pre-pandemic and who frequently wore athleisure slash gym clothes there, those panels are useless. Like as Thank a person you. who actually actively exercised in workout pants, I never wore the panel bullshit or that have like the lattice work around the calf. Like why the fuck no. do I need calf air going on in there? Like they don't, for me, don't do shit. And I was busting my ass in that class. Let me tell you. I didn't say, oh God, thank God for this like thigh panel going up the side of my pants because I'm just a degree cooler and I need that while I'm vigorously exercising. But also it's like there's definitely this is part of the 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 jogger phenomenon, which again, I have the time. Yeah. We're we're sexifying things. We're making things sexy. So like the panels and the athleisure and calling sweatpants joggers, it's like the way that our culture is designed is like we, we have to feel sexy at every minute of the day and it's unrealistic and it's it's useless and I don't want to feel sexy every minute of the day. And you have to have clothes that address your slovenly side. You need the balance. You need the balance. And when I'm working out and when I'm laying around, it's not about feeling sexy. It's about being on this goddamn treadmill. And really, again, give me the panel and the ass crack if you want to talk about airing some shit out because my <laughs> knees and thighs and calves don't need it. And yeah. that's that's purely a sexifying like, look, you can see a little skin through these leggings that are covered in sweat stains everywhere else because these panels mean nothing. <laughs> let, let me let me tell you, I used to do Soul Cycle in Hollywood, California at the Soul Cycle that was in that complex. I think I forgot what I think it's called East Town, but it's over uh-huh. off of um, Hollywood Boulevard. And it was like the fucking hottest people 
ever would go there. They were like 23 years old, perfect model, like blondes, you know, perfect top knots, like $125 (laughs) sports bras. And I don't know what happened to me where I just don't give, truly don't (laughs) give a fuck about what I look like when I work out. And I also, for some reason, I was not born with the genetic code that somehow says, oh, I should be embarrassed working out in front of hot young people. I literally don't give a fuck. And I will literally saddle up next to this perfect model in a triple XL Bob Seger (laughs) t-shirt and like a pair of dusty ass sweatpants that I'm pretty sure I got from Old Navy like five years ago. Where I'm sure I've burned holes in the the fucking thighs, all that shit. And I'm just like, what's up? Like, what's up? I'm here to take this expensive, stupid spin class. And I don't care what I look like. And I'm just like, that is the, to me, that's the way you work out. You work out in whatever you want to feel comfortable in. It's not about the gear. And it ain't, the $125 sports bra is not functionally doing anything better than the $5 one from Target or whatever. Thank you. And that this is my new favorite thing about you is this description <laughs> of like every every once in a while I get a new favorite fact about Millie and it's this it's this one this week. <laughs> I will roll up to your soul psycho class in my burnt Bob Seeger. <laughs> I, I had to post a picture of the Bob Seeger t-shirt. I pretty you, much you wear it to work to. out and I wear it to bed. And those are the same clothes. Thank yeah. you. Those should be the same. That's the same drawer. Those clothes are in the same drawer and that's it. I will say the best workout experience of my life was when I, I used to live in Rhode Island and I would go to the Y and they have um, the Silver Sneakers Club. Oh, I love and a silver sneaker. Yep. I love a silver sneaker. And I was in my like early 30s, but I just kind of made friends with all of them. So they would like let me work out with them. And it was the best. Ex- you want to talk about some people who don't give a fuck about what they're wearing to work out in? Yep. You give me someone who survived the depression and has held on to every item of clothing they've ever purchased. So you're saying that they're, they're rolling up in like a 1940s Memphis Bell style bomber jacket to like yes. do, do a speed walk. Yes. I mean, there's one lady. She, look, I got a pinafore. I'm wearing a pinafore. That's what I'm working out in today. I don't give a shit what any of you young kids have to say. If what I have is a pair of slacks, Kate Hepburn style slacks, then that's what I'm wearing to work out in. These are my official gym sleep clothes. And if I'm sleeping in slacks, I'm working out in slacks. Listen, the the thing that old people fucking love that I actually wish would come back in reference to sweatpants and gym clothes is, you know how like they're on like older ladies um, sweatshirts, they would have like the doily that was sewn into the yes. sweatshirt on the neckline. Bitch, bring that shit back. Let's go Thank to you. let's go to Barry's boot camp. I want to wear my like doily applique around the neckline maybe a little on the cuff on the on the cuffs of the sweat uh shirt you gotta have it on the cuffs pair that with a pair of slacks and let's go yeah put a big fucking duck on this thing like right across the chest (laughs) that's my athleisure this is the energy we're bringing into this this airy season (laughs) it's gonna be called silver sneaker chic or something it's gonna be (laughs) something catchy and then they'll charge nine hundred dollars for a pair of pants and we'll go back to wearing your panel cutout leggings 
How far are you willing to go down the road, kids? I know you. <laughs> I know you try to roll up in your like double platform Fila sneakers, your ugly ass shoes. But oh you know what? You got to go harder than that. I mean, if you want to start co-opting the elderly fashion sense, you better bring it. Bring it all the way. <laughs> I want to see a walker with tennis balls on the end. <laughs> then I'll know. Then I'll know how cool you are. Ah. Trends. Oh, gosh. Uh, I could talk about this forever, but I sincerely want to hear from people. Like, what is your feeling about joggers versus sweatpants? Because I do think it's a cultural moment that we need to discuss. Yeah. I mean, if you are at all educated about the taxonomy of sweat clothes and how the names came about, please drop us a line at I saw what you did pot at gmail.com. We would literally love to hear from you more than life itself. Speaking of which, we've gotten some fantastic emails. Have we? We, we really have. We really have. And I'm going to read two of them to you. And they're very Millie specific. Mm. And I'm going to read. They're, they're both fantastic on different levels. But I want to read uh, this first one to you. And just this is really purely just to get your, your reaction. So just pay attention, folks, to what's coming, coming after I read this. Okay. First email, and I'm not going to read the subject because it will give away the email. Hi, ladies. It was truly wonderful to hear y'all break down how totally insane the concept of babysitting was. I hope it was. That doesn't still happen, does it? Strange children watching strange, slightly younger children. What the fuck were our parents thinking? It was especially weird and wonderful for me personally, since Millie was my babysitter. I remember being in total awe of Millie and her sister Stephanie's coolness. While I am sad I never got to watch Memphis Bell, I distinctly remember getting introduced to the kids in the hall and whose line is it anyway at the DeChirico home. My sense of humor was forever altered. To loop back to horniness, I recall arguing about which kid was the hottest. If memory serves, I believe Millie and I were both into Bruce. Oh. Love the show and the bracket is hysterical, Lachlan. <sighs> My heart has stopped. <laughs> Truly, this is so amazing. Lachlan. Lachlan. What, okay. Oh, oh, my God. I can't even believe this. First of all, I think of that episode. So the episode that she's referencing is the prank phone calls episode because we were talking about when a stranger calls and you yes. said that babysitting was a psychotic profession or something. You yeah, were like, it's a psychotic endeavor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a psychotic endeavor. And we, and I think I shared a babysitting story. It was literally just sort of like an aside where I said, oh yeah, I used to babysit for these three kids every day for an entire summer and I was like 12. She was one of the kids. <laughs> she was the oldest kid. Lachlan. Oh my God. That is too insane. I can't believe wonderful. she listens to this podcast. It is wonderful. I just I love the little the hints of coolness. Like you're letting these kids watch the kids in the hall and whose line is it anyway, which is, again, an argument for why you should not let children watch children. I am shocked that she's not writing me from a jail. Like, I'm just shocked. <laughs> we don't know that that's true. We don't know. We don't actually know. Uh, but I will say I'm emotional hearing that somebody remembers that I got them into the kids in the hall. That makes me, yeah. first of all, I, I can't stress enough just how important the kids in the hall was to people of a certain age. I think you yep. and I both feel this way, Danielle. 
100%. Everybody that I know that I like and have in my life every day was basically obsessed with the kids in the hall at the same time that I was late 80s, early 90s. Absolutely. Stayed up late to watch it, recorded it off yep. of the TV onto the VCR. Yep. They are heroes to people of a certain generation. And hopefully the other generations, because honestly, like that shit is still fucking funny. Like I, yeah. I'll catch a clip online or something and I'm like, oh, my God, they're still it still hits. I bought the box set a while ago because I didn't want to live in a world where the kids in the hall wasn't in my life. Yeah. And I can't count on it to be always streaming. So I just bought the box set. Yeah. I mean, they used to play it on Comedy Central like every day after school. I mean, that's how I saw it. I didn't see it when it was on HBO originally. I saw it when it was being rerun. Oh, my God. I am so flattered that you wrote in Lachlan. I just can't even I can't even tell you how happy that made me to just hear that (laughs) (laughs) because I'm like, I don't know. You just never think, oh, a person I babysat when I was like. 12 or 13 years old is out there listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I'm, I'm, I hope that you and your sisters are okay and you're not all in jail. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're alive, Lachlan. Right back. Like it is just, I just thought that was a darling email to receive. So this email, you've, you, you're already aware of this email because it uh-huh. came through a couple of days ago. And let me tell you, when I say that everyone involved with the production of this show had an aneurysm when we got this email. <laughs> Work stopped for the day. <laughs> it was a mess. It was a fucking the mess. was popping. This email is, look, I don't want to bring a hierarchy to our emails, but this has got to be one of the best. <laughs> All right. The subject is, is it good? Question mark. Hmm. Hi, Millie. Fun to hear your podcast about Memphis Bell. Very flattered to have been on your mind once or twice. So, as not to beat around the bush, want to go skating Friday night? Let me know. I'm saving my new sweater, XODB Sweeney. <laughs> okay, let me walk you through the range of emotions I felt. Okay, first of all, so Taryn, our social media producer, she sent a message to our Slack that was like, it was literally like, in all caps, is this real? <laughs> like we were thinking, I mean, it was like a Loch Ness monster sighting. Like we were like, yeah, is this real? We went into instant discovery mode. We're yes. like, look it up. Check it out. See if it's on the Twitter. See the Instagram. <laughs> we all worked for Snopes for like a good 15, 20 minutes because we were like, OK, what if it's fake? How could it be fake? Who would do that? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like convinced that it was fake until we were really like all right take it take it down a notch and see see what this actually is this is an email from somebody who listened to the podcast and we found out you know just through figuring it out that it was likely real i mean i guess it still could be fake i don't know well no <laughs> then we found out it was 100 percent real because one of y'all snitched directly to db sweeney on twitter I snitch you, no. one of you out there snitched i know that one of y'all was like you should listen to this episode because they talk about you for 20 minutes which thank you because he wrote in but that was y'all snitching. I I usually fucking hate snitch tagging on Twitter, but in this case, <laughs> apparently it worked out. First of all, it's incredibly kind for yes. somebody to write us after acting like a geeked out teenager talking about me as a geeked out teenager. It was like <laughs> the worst. 
Because of course, you know, I had to go back and listen to that episode and be like, oh yeah, I was a total. I mean, I said that I would like walk into the fire forever. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will follow you into the fire. I mean, it's like this is like when you're in high school and you accidentally slip the note about your crush to your crush or like they get it in the chain of desks that it's going through and they read it and you're like oh fuck I never meant for you to know this I know I'm like uh, I that is like one of the most to this day uh, one of my absolute fears is that fear of like oh my crush knows they know but apparently I I didn't care enough because I announced it on a fucking podcast and he heard it and he wrote in that very, very sweet email, so obviously sweet. in reference to his masterworks, Memphis Bell and the cutting edge of which I spoke highly of both. Like I basically <laughs> said that cutting edge, like changed the course of my life in some in some way. And I fell into this crush hole for DB Sweetie. After seeing The Cutting Edge, and then I watched Memphis Bell, and of course, that was the episode that started the is it good or was I horny thing, and it was Memphis Bell and Gleam in the Cube. And so, yeah, we were fucking keyed up during that episode. I (laughs) could not be tamed. I could not be tamed. It wasn't even my crush or my, I could not be tamed. I was so excited. And I'm excited because he is so kind and yeah. so sweet. And I'll tell you the other way we have confirmation that it's 100% real. Millie wrote back and then he wrote back and they had a little discussion <laughs> and he gave us permission to read this email on our podcast. That's how nice and cool he is. No, he was, I mean, obviously has an amazing sense of humor. Seems so cool. So happy that he wrote in just because it really was like closing the circle in my childhood dream. Uh, And when do you get to do that kind of stuff? I mean, that's just crazy. Like that never happens to me. Uh, All of my dreams have died, by the way. (laughs) All of my childhood (laughs) dreams are dead. But look, sometimes you get (laughs) something nice. (laughs) You get that spark of hope again. Oh my god. I'm just I'm just tickled by this and I, your reaction was the best and most pure and it just made my life to know that like this pod if this podcast has only wrought this then I we can end it tomorrow and I'm happy. <laughs> we won't. We won't, but I I and and listen also truly truly. This is this is how you know this that DB Sweeney is a class act. I I got to say. If you have ever had a crush on me, you better fucking tell me. Yes. Now's the time, motherfuckers, cuz it made a day for several people to know that. Listen, I'm at this point in my life, in my age, where you have got to say the thing you want to say. Is that a John Mayer song? I don't know. But it better uh, not be. It, but <laughs> I mean, as you age, you realize that like life is fucking short. And if you really like somebody, you better say that shit. Come with it. Because it really does make somebody's day. I mean, listen, the enti- I'm not going to lie. The entire day after we t- figured out that this email was real, <laughs> I was like, I, t- I called my sister. I was like, you are never going to believe this. Like, you're never going to believe that this happened. You know, and my mom, my mom was listening. And she's like, what are you talking about? I was like, this guy I had a crush on when I was 12 years old wrote an email to her, you know. It was, it was probably your mom who wrote the tweet. She's the ultra snitch. <laughs> I will say that there was uh, there was no avatar on that snitch tagger, so <laughs> I don't know who it was. It was a Russian bot, but thank you because <laughs> it brought 
it brought us and DB Sweeney together, so that's great. Well, he is a he is just a dream and just so kind. And again, these are great movies. Watch Fire in the Sky. Freak yourself the fuck out. It is a great, great film. Uh, and so is Memphis Bell, and so is Cutting Edge, and he's just he's given us so much and continues to give in the form of this email, which I am one hundred percent stitching. I'm gonna embroider this on a pillow for you for Christmas. If you could put it on the back of some juicy couture sweatpants, I will wear those fucking. Send me every your day. Bob Seeger t-shirt. Send me your Bob <laughs> Seeger t-shirt. I will stitch this on the back. And also, let me just tell you right now, Christian Slater, if you're out there and you <laughs> you want to write a podcast host, I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. We will receive that shit. And love well, it. That, that's a different story because I have markedly said that he was responsible for all of my bad dating decisions. <laughs> so if he's going to write into this podcast, he better come prepared to discuss that fact. I will put him up to the task. Don't worry. All right. I'll let you do it. But I'm just saying, is we this is an open road here, folks. Like if Christian Slater wants to come on and talk about your feelings when you were 12 and loved that masterpiece. Strap the, the fuck in. Bring it. Because you, you know what my life was like when I was 12. Strap the fuck in. <laughs> he will leave this podcast in tears is all I have to say. <laughs> and I'm open to it. Bring him on. <laughs> I'm open to it. Honestly, if Christian Slater came on this podcast, I would be dead. You would have to do this podcast by yourself. We need, we need it to close the is it good or was I horny chapter of this bracket in this month now that we're in the wind down. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, if his kids are listening, I don't know. That's always my first thought is like the actors that I had crushes on now have children who are like the age of podcast listeners. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, so I'm sure somebody's kid is out there being like, what? <laughs> They're talking about my mom and dad. Come my on. dad's a dweeb. <laughs> Just them. Well, thank, thank you, DB, for writing in. Very sweet. We would love to have you have you on uh, to chat about your fantastic career yeah maybe we will that door is open the possibility is out there but i it warmed both my former and current self to know that you listened to that episode and you were really nice about my crush so beautiful what what a mailbag oh i can't wait to get into this theme this week this one's a good one. And we're going to make this recurring, I believe, because it's it's that good. Yeah. So I think that you and I were both kind of talking uh, and we kind of thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do an episode and a recurring theme based on one person, actor, director, maybe whoever, mm-hmm. and show something from like the early period and then like a later period film. So kind of a before and after type of scenario. So the theme for this week is titled... Before and after Pam Greer. Yes, we wanted to start with Pam Greer because how could you not, right? I mean, she is a, I mean, I know, again, we talk about the word icon, iconic kind of being like used a lot. But in this case, I mean, she's a cultural icon. Completely. And a personal hero. Like, I I do not say that lightly. Like, I have watched so many interviews with her. And once you know about her life and you know about her story, she is a trailblazer. And 
truly cool, like a very cool person uh, who kind of is is interested in the world and shows that through her work. And I just I think she's just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. I mean, honestly, she's an incredible human being. I mean, she's got yeah. such an amazing life. She's had an amazing career. She was a cancer survivor. She was a rape and sexual abuse survivor. Uh, I mean, she grew up in the Jim Crow South. I mean, there's just so much that she's experienced that it makes her just sort of heroic for people. And she's an absolute hero to film lovers. Like, I think a lot of what people remember her for is her black exploitation movie era. Uh, and honestly, she was pretty much the first black female action star and especially in the black exploitation genre there was primarily men and then she came along yeah. and she just became kind of the figurehead of it and she just had an iconic look and she's just been celebrated throughout history but she's also been in so many other things i mean she was on television she was in the l word for many years um mm -hmm. she's done theater she's written you know, she sang. She was she was she did her own song. She had a song in one of her movies, The Big Dollhouse, and she sang with Bobby Womack. I mean, she's kind of an incredible lady, really. She is just a Renaissance woman. I I cannot say enough. She she was she survived Richard Pryor <laughs> in all intents and purposes. Yeah. No. I mean, honestly, it's you know, you just in reading about her, you know, she never was married, but she. How she she was with very famous men for many years. I mean, she almost married Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. She didn't marry him because he wanted her to convert to Islam and she didn't want to. She was with Freddie Prinze. I mean, she was with Don Cornelius from Soul Train. Uh, I mean, Will Chamberlain. But yeah. And there is there's this this video that I I hope we can post the link somewhere, maybe in the episode description. Um, but there, if you have the time, it's about 25 minutes long, where the Film Society at Lincoln Center, uh, it's on YouTube, they interviewed her because they did a three-day showcase of her films. So in this interview in particular, they're talking about uh, coffee. And she just talks about her life and, you know, growing up with her grandparents and who her first feminist, you know, um, I, like her 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 feminist ideals where they came from and really her whole life is a true representation of her strength and of her intelligence and it's just she's remarkable she's a remarkable yeah. person but I would definitely watch that video if you get a chance it's really cool to hear her talk about herself in her own words in that way yeah we'll have to post a link to it on our social media uh but you know initially you know when she first came to Hollywood she was working at American International Pictures, which, you know, like I said, I don't want to go into too much of a film history lesson. But if you don't know AIP is what it's called, they were a film production company that were basically responsible for the double feature, the concept of the double feature of the drive-in movies from the 50s, 60s and 70s. So they were the people that were basically creating now what we call B movies. And so when she, when she came to Hollywood, she was working in the AIP offices as like the switchboard operator. And I think it was Jack Hill, who was the director of the movie that you're talking about today. He kind of found her and put her in films and she starred in a, a lot of AIP movies, a lot of uh, women in prison films, as they're called. Uh, a lot right. of them were filmed in the Philippines. Which is interesting because I think Pam is she's 
got mixed ancestry. So she's black, Hispanic, Filipino, Chinese. And I think that she's Cheyenne. Um, You know, she's in the Philippines filming these quote unquote B movies for AIP. She kind of gets her career started in that way. And then she starts making the action films. And that's where she's known for. She's known for being Foxy Brown and being coffee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, imagine coming from that place and then having a career that's as long as that she's had a lot of those people i think in general in hollywood you're really lucky if you work after your 20s right right and the fact that she was able to continue and do things and you know eventually was in the movie that i'm going to talk about which is kind of her you know it was kind of like her resurgence in a lot of ways in the 90s is amazing and um as a testament to her talent you know absolutely and that's that's something that i love about uh our theme today that we we did inadvertently as we're talking about the before and after of pam greer in terms of these films and and in terms of these you know two movies but we're also looking at the before and after of an actor who kind of created a genre and then in the resurgence of her career got to then act in a role that played out everything that has come since in the genre that she helped define. So that is like blows my mind when I think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so amazing and she did it so well. I mean, it it, it didn't all feel like she was sort of a parody of what she, you know, it's not as if you're watching somebody, you know, put, put the uh, old uniform back on and just do the thing. I mean, she was compelling in her own way, independent of her history. And it's just a testament again to her amazing skill and we love her so much and we're i'm just so happy we're doing this theme who's going first this week is that you you're going first me yeah you know it's interesting to do the the her later movie first because i know but there's so many references to your movie that it would be fun to look at it this way not in non-chronological order i agree So my movie for this week, for the theme of Before and After, Pam Greer, is a movie from 1997. It's called Jackie Brown, and it was directed by Quentin Tarantino. You never got into the whole CD revolution? Oh, I got a few, but I can't afford to start all over again. I mean, I've invested too much time and money in my albums. Yeah, but you can't get new stuff on records. (laughs) I don't get new stuff that often. All right. Let's get into it. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I know. I love this movie too much, baby. Too much. And this is a good point, a good moment to say, and I'm sure you're going to bring it up, but like that Quentin Tarantino was obsessed with Jack Hill, who directed and wrote Coffee, yep. which is a movie I'll talk about after this. And so this is a real, it, it's, it's not only its own unique living, breathing film, but it's heavily influenced by by the Pam Greer genre. So that's very cool. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, uh, we could talk about Tarantino for hours upon end. And there are episodes, literally episodes, yeah. where people are talking about him 
all the time. So we don't have to. Yeah, we don't have to. In <laughs> fact, if you listen to my friends that do the Pure Cinema podcast, uh, they are Brian and Elric who do it for the New Beverly, which is the movie theater that Quentin Tarantino owns. Uh, he actually comes on their podcast many, like all the time. So if you want to do a deep dive into his influences, he'll he'll give them to you on that podcast. And those guys are awesome. So I wanted to yeah. tell you about that. But let me just tell you something, though. When this movie came out, in 1997, I was graduating from high school. And I mentioned this in one of the early bonus episodes we've done, but I was obsessed with Reservoir Dogs in high school, much like a lot of people, I think. And at the time, I mean, come on, I was 18 years old. I had very specific opinions on Quentin Tarantino. And Jackie Brown was the movie that came out after the phenomenon of Pulp Fiction. So it was like Pulp right. Fiction. And then th- this was the, it's like bands that put out an incredible life changing album. And then everyone's like, what's the next one going to be? And there's this anticipation. And that's how I felt. I mean, I was like, I could not wait to see this movie. And I think it came out on Christmas day that year. Mm-hmm. I was, couldn't wait to see it. And then, watched it and came out saying wow this movie is not pulp fiction or reservoir dogs and kind of left it at that and i didn't watch it for a long time but honestly thank god (laughs) thank god i watched it again and thank god for watching movies over again especially as you get older because honestly as we speak, Jackie Brown is my favorite all-time Tarantino movie. Like to me, I right. feel like it's a masterpiece. It's I'm not sliding him in any way, but I'm saying it's the only movie of his that I can truly watch over and over and over again. Like every time I watch it, I it feel I just wanted to continue. I want to live in the world. And honestly, it wasn't until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out that I felt that even slightly again. Right. And I will say, it's weird. I think that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Jackie Brown share some characteristics. I think they both kind of have this almost kind of melancholic vibe and it's and they're both kind of about aging and about getting older. And and, and that to me is appealing as somebody who is aging and getting older. Um, And that's why I just love Jackie Brown so much at now is I, I truly see it as a different movie that I did when I was 18. I wasn't ready for it at 18. Same. I have the almost a a completely parallel experience to yours, which is that I saw it when it came out when I was 20 and it was after Pulp Fiction and I was expecting this like, you know, I was expecting this high, violent, you know, kind of fast paced. And I came out of the movie feeling like, well, that was slow and interesting. And all right, that was all right. That was what it was. Um, But then, like you said, thankfully watched it again and then could not stop watching it because it was so... There are so many moments of that movie that stuck with me, even from that first viewing. And since people have given us the green light to give spoilers, um, (laughs) that last that last scene of her in the car mouthing along to across 110th Street is visually and emotionally stunning. Yeah. And I think about that just all the time, just that scene all the time. And so when I came back to the movie later in life, I was able to not only identify with some of the characters more, but also to just really envelop myself in and just love this character of Jackie Brown and understanding her motivations more and understanding her, you know, her life more. And it was just 
absolutely wonderful to be able to dig back into a film like that. Oh, totally. And I'll just say, you know, Jackie Brown was, I think, the only time that Tarantino adapted somebody else's work. Right. And, you know, I don't know if that has any correlation to the amount to which I love it, but it basically comes from an Elmore Leonard novel called Rum Punch. And essentially it's everything's the same, except Tarantino changed a few things. He changed the setting from Florida to L.A. He changed Jackie's last name and then he changed her from a white woman to a black woman. Basically, and a lot of that was because of Pam Greer, because he loved Pam Greer so much. He was such a fan of hers. Um, you know, Tarantino is obviously like a really big cult movie person. He was an ex-video store employee. I think we know the type. Uh, <laughs> I, I was one, too. And, um, you know, he wears his influences on his sleeve. I mean, like all of his movies are homages to movies that he loves. And, yeah. you know, he was obsessed with Pam Greer, obsessed with Jack Hill, obsessed with the whole like AIP era. And, you know, he wanted to put her in this movie. And so he wrote, basically, he had her in mind when he was developing it. So I'll give you a little synopsis of the film if you haven't seen it. Um, So, you know, Jackie Brown is, of course, played by Pam Greer. And she is a middle-aged flight attendant for uh, this airline called Cabo Airlines, which is this, like, low-cost shitball regional airline where she makes a shockingly low wage. I mean, she talks about how she makes $16,000 a year. And even in 97 money, that is nothing. I mean, I was like, holy shit. So, of course, to make ends meet, you know, presumably, she's also helping this local gun runner named Ordell, who is played by Samuel Jackson. And um, she's helping him smuggle money, his money that he's presumably got from selling guns uh, into the U.S. from Mexico via her airline job. And at the beginning of the movie, uh, it's that whole thing where it kind of looks like The Graduate, where she's going through LAX on those like, um, you know, you've gone to obviously gone to LAX where it's got those uh, color panel tiles. Yeah, yeah, it's the total Dustin Hoffman in in The Graduate thing. But she shows up after her flight and she gets almost immediately busted at the airport by these like two cocky, arrogant, like one's an ATF guy. One's a LA PD detective played by Michael Keaton and Michael Bowen. And, you know, obviously they are busting her because she, they know that she's connected to Ordell and, you know, they want to catch Ordell. Right. So basically she's arrested at the airport and goes to jail and Ordell sends a bail bondsman named Max Cherry who is played by my love, your love, everyone's love, Robert Forster. Who looks like, I have to say, he could be, I don't know if you've ever watched Friday Night Lights, but he could be Kyle Chandler, his dad, like the coach. A hundred percent. It's like, imagine old Kyle Chandler with like old man pants and an old man blazer. And that's Robert Forster as Max Cherry. I Cannot stand how much I love him in this movie. I'm He's so good. Oh my god, so adorable. But basically, Max picks her up from jail. He brings her back to her apartment, and you can just tell they kind of have a connection. He's not judging her, by the way. He's right. basically like, "I'm here to pick you up. You you have what you need. Like, let me know if you need any help." You can tell he's kind of a kind guy, and you know he ends up coming back the next day because, as it turns out, Jackie accidentally borrowed his gun uh, to protect (laughs) herself from Ordell because you know as you know how crime movies are like you get arrested at the airport 
and the person that you're in connection with suddenly wants to know what you said to the cops. Yep. So Max shows back up and they have coffee and they bond over records Mm -hmm. and they discuss her very grim situation, which is that the detectives want her to give up Ordell in exchange for a deal. But obviously we know what will happen if she does that. And also Jackie is tired. She's tired. She's in her 40s. She's already been to jail once. Yeah. For a guy, by the way. (laughs) She mentions that. She's like, I went to jail because of a husband. And she doesn't want to go back to jail. And she can't get a better job than the one she has because she's been to jail. And -hmm. she's just in this really rough spot. And I think Robert Forrester's character feels that from her he understands what it's like to be kind of like in his position yeah so basically jackie attempts like the ultimate hail mary which is that she comes up with this scheme where she's going to cross both ordell and the detectives she's going to do like a fake money delivery thing where essentially they're all going to like cross paths and butt heads and then she's just going to sneaky squirrel off with the money and she's going to start a new life. But she needs Max to help her because he's kind of in this position where he's a neutral party and he can help her out. And right. he agrees because he has a little crush on Jackie Brown. He's in love. It's love, baby. He plays her favorite Delphonic song every time he gets into his car. He goes and buys the cassette tape. He went and bought the cassette tape at Sam Goody. I mean, could you just die? I, my heart is blown into bits when I see him at Sam Goody buying the tape uh, of the Delphonics. Did not blow your mind this time. But he wants her to win. And I I think it's because they're both feeling the middle age, right? Yeah. Because this movie, Jackie Brown, I mean, it's a love story between two middle-aged people, which is lovely and heartwarming, and we love to see it, literally. We love to see it. But these are also people who have been tangentially and directly related to the criminal world, probably their entire lives. And honestly, like, they're both like, how long can we keep this up? Right. I mean, it's this this movie is entirely about old people. I mean, it's about getting older and not being able to or wanting to do the stuff that you've been doing. And it's like, you know, it's fucking Robert De Niro who can't handle smoking weed out of bongs with, you know, young, beautiful Bridget Fonda. He's coughing and he's just like, yo, I can't handle this weed anymore. You know, it's Robert Forrester talking about how he can't sit in apartments waiting on people with a stun gun that smell like cat pee. And, you know, I mean, it's like it's just like uh, it's about older people who just can't do this shit anymore, you know? And that's real. That's a real concept. And that's something I did not get the first time I watched the film, but I mm-hmm. 100% got the next time I watched the film. This is this is the the kind of middle-aged love story that I adore because it doesn't end the the idea of happiness is not ending up together. Yep. You know, like the idea of happiness is very much taking that exhaustion with your own life and turning it into something else, either with someone or not. But that is the goal. The goal is not, I want the true love bubble. It is, I want to change my situation. <laughs> well, and that true love is also literally just wanting another person to be happy and and knowing that it's probably not with you. And it's just for them and their own terms. Right. You know, 
I'm glad that you brought up the the heist element of it because strangely, that's usually the only kind of movie that I don't love. Like I cannot tell you how many times I have fallen asleep trying to watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy because <sighs> I cannot keep up with heist movies most of the time. I don't know what's going on in my brain. I can't do it. <laughs> it's a lot. So, yeah. It's a lot of moving parts and I'm just like, Ugh. so I really loved what another thing I love about this film is that there's a kind of a, a gentle heist. Maybe it's because it comes from Pam Greer's perspective or she's the one kind of in charge of it that makes it more accessible to me. And I can follow along with it and I can kind of get into it a little bit easier. Yeah, I honestly think that if it wasn't for the people who are in the movie and let's get serious when it comes down to it, the people who are in this movie that make it compelling for me are Samuel Jackson, Pam Greer and Robert Forrester. If they weren't as good of actors as they are, I could see where I would probably like nod off with like all of the like heist details. Heist details are a lot. And it can get really convoluted. Like there was like parts of this movie where I'm like, okay, now wait, what's the plan? Who's in on it? Who's not? And that can be exhausting just mentally, but they're great. Like I know that everybody loves Samuel Jackson and I know that he's in, he's an incredible force in every single movie that he's in, especially in Tarantino movies. But like, he's so good in this movie. Like that to me was like the part that, really stood out for, for me when I watched it literally the other night when we were preparing for this episode, which I was like, he is so great and so easy breezy when it comes to acting. Like that is just, yes. he's got a skill. Like the my favorite part of that movie is, of him in this movie is when he shows up at that woman's house and like, I don't know if she's a drug addict and she he's like, damn girl, how you live like this? Like what? Like this. This some repugnant shit. Like when he says repugnant <laughs> shit, I laugh so hard. Um, it's so funny. So it, it's just a two second scene, but I I crack up every time because he hear stops it. himself in the middle of like an intense situation to be like, "This is some repugnant shit." Like how could in her house is just like she's nodding out on the couch, and her house is just in disarray. But you also get the feeling that he's kind of talking about the interior design of it. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> Because he's, I mean, let's get serious. Samuel L. Jackson brought back the Kangol. I swear to God, this movie brought back the Kangol hat. Do you remember when we were like, there was a, uh, I swear to God, everybody went and got a Kangol after this movie. I swear. Oh my God. Uh, and it was carried around that like European man purse thing. Like yep. my grandpa used to carry a purse like that. Like, a, what do you call it? Is it like an attache? It's like a. Yes. Like a like a purse for a man that has like the little loop on the end. I love that look. It's so it reminds so me of my grandpa. Good. Um, but he's so good in this movie. And you know what? I will say about the like this movie is obviously about a love story, but it's also a love story to the old exploitation and cult movie world. As I said before, yes. I mean it is a movie for people like Pam Greer and Robert Forrester, both who were making basically cult exploitation action movies in the 70s and 80s and at this point let's get serious they weren't really doing much in hollywood i mean they were probably in things but they weren't like superstars like they were right and 
it kind of in, reintroduced them to this whole new audience, gave them a second act. I mean, Robert Forrester was nominated for like a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this role for Max Cherry, and I don't call Jackie Brown a black exploitation movie at all. No. I don't think it's a black exploitation movie, but it references so many of her movies, like your movie Coffee, Foxy Brown. It uses the songs from Coffee and the Big Dollhouse, and you know, of mm-hmm. course, well, across 110th Street, which we've briefly mentioned on this podcast before and there are moments literally where you can watch pam greer in jackie brown and she looks exactly like she did in coffee like she has the exact same body which is incredible (laughs) i was like damn and i think that she was in her late 40s when she made this movie and i'm like damn she looks insane like i love it even now watching it in hd i'm like she's she's gorgeous she is gorgeous stunning like looks so pre so self-possessed and so like there's just but she looks you're right physically almost exactly the same and i and i just love it i just love this movie i want to live in this movie i mean it actually is a great movie about la because it is a part of la that i i don't think really isn't a lot of movies like i mean they always make movies about hollywood and beverly hills and you know stuff like that but it's like when do you hear about like hawthorne (laughs) you know exactly it's great and i'm so glad that pam it re it reinvigorated her for younger people it made people want to go back and watch her 70s action movies and um and she's still such an incredible actress in this film and i can't stop loving it and won't I know. And you shouldn't. And, and you shouldn't. I shouldn't. And I love that, too, because I think that the thing the thing that I'll bring up in, in my film, too, is kind of like the style of acting and, you know, what she was known for versus what she was doing in Jackie Brown. And I think that the the one area of redemption, if there was any to be had, which I truly don't think there was, but if there is an area of redemption that this movie also gave to her is the knowledge that she can fucking act. Yeah, because I think a lot of people look at black exploitation films or kind of like those earlier films and feel like, well, this is just for fun. But she's really a good actress, <laughs> and that is what is, you know, kind of falls by the wayside sometimes when you're looking at these B films and you're looking at these things that were not taken seriously by the film community for so long. And she's just a good actress. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is typically what happens with certain actors that work in certain genres and a lot of exploitation quote-unquote exploitation actors or b-movie actors sometimes the conventions of the genre take over and you forget that they're actually incredible actors with skill and range and chaps and i think it took a movie like jackie brown to make us remember or make us realize that a lot of times because she is incredible in her early films certainly but was she allowed to convey the emotion in her face in that last scene of jackie brown yes you know in her early work i don't know if she was and she was able to do it finally. And we all realized, man, she's such a gift, you know? Truly. Oh, what a great pick. I'm so glad you picked this film for before and after. So my film for the theme of before and after Pam Greer is the 1973 film Coffee, which was written and directed by Jack Hill. My name's Coffee. Coffee, black and stacked and packed with fury. (laughs) 
with both barrels zeroed in on the mob's top killers. This is the end of your rotten life, you dope pusher. So now this, I'll start out with um, just a brief synopsis of the film before we get into Jack Hill a little bit and then get into Pam Greer. So this is a film about a nurse uh, whose full name, by the way, is Flower Child Coffin. I don't think I realized that was her full name. (laughs) I certainly didn't until I looked it up this week. That's crazy. And she goes by Coffee with a Y, C-O-F-F-Y. And she's a nurse and she basically turns vigilante and she's looking to get revenge on the heroin dealer, King George, that got her sister addicted. Um, So she does this by pretending to be a sex worker and kind of infiltrating this world of crime and drugs and, and looking to work her way up to the point where she can get to him. So Jack Hill is kind of credited with like discovering Pam Greer, even though she had been doing these other movies. And and he is he's someone who was a set designer uh, and art director who turned into a film director. Uh, he was a, a classmate of Francis Ford Coppola. And there's a dazed article that refers to him as the king of cult carnage which I just think is such a fantastic title to have. Big but fan. he was someone who... Big like, fan of Jack Hill. Yeah, he's done a lot of great movies. You should certainly look up. And again, there are plenty of podcasts out there that are talking about his work in depth if you want to look into it. Um, we would rather spend 40 minutes talking about sweatpants, and that's just who <laughs> we are. <laughs> but I will say that he is someone, in, in everything I've read about him and everything that I've, I've you know, kind of seen him talking in interviews, he's someone who is making these films during a, a very heightened part of this resurgence of, um, you know, kind of racial dynamics and racial politics in the USA. And he was very aware, more so than most people would have gone on record to say in Hollywood at the time. He was very aware of the racial dynamics and how they affected and impacted the legacy of film. So, again, in this article uh, where Dazed calls him the king of cult carnage, There's a quote where he says, back then there was a lot of discrimination. I remember when I began working on coffee, I made a real effort to find black technicians. There were not many of them because it was a union film and there were not a lot of black people in the union. But we found a guy called Bob Miner. We gave him an acting part in the movie, but he also did stunt work. He learned on the job and eventually became one of the best in the business. Now he works as a stunt coordinator on blockbusters such as Charlie's Angels and National Treasure. We also hired a Black assistant director on coffee. We made a major effort to get Black people into the union and give them work. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, he saw that the legacy of film could not just be making movies about Blackness, that he had to also be working on the other side to get people to a point where they could tell their own stories and be part of making film that would continue the legacy of their own stories. And I just thought that was so astute. And it makes perfect sense to me that he would look at someone like Pam Greer and say, she's a star and she needs to be, I need to give her a platform. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of like how I looked at this film when I was, again, like reading about it and doing some research about it this week, is that it took that kind of person, because this is, again, a, a, a time when white people were running everything in film. So it takes that kind of person to be a real ally to bring us these classics that we have today. And again, Pam Greer is just phenomenal. 
what I love about this, and again, I took a lot of what I'm about to say from that Film Society clip that I watched um, on YouTube, but she really talks about, when she's reflecting on her career, she talks about how a lot of her characters were based on the liberated women in her life. So she's very aware of how she was perceived because, you know, this movie came out to like mixed reviews and people didn't quite know what to do with it at first. And but she's aware of that. And she also relates her pivot into this genre of ass kicking women, essentially. Um, She relates that to her own experiences with you know, the growth that she needed to do as a part of her her feminist ideals and an extension of a desire to protect herself, you know, on the heels of being raped and being sexually assaulted. And so when you know that going into it, I think it's it's not as easy to brush her off as just a black exploitation actress, because what she's bringing to the role is so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And Coffee is one of those films that, look, we're just going to get to it. There is a tit out in every scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> like a single tit. Jack Hill's claim to fame, maybe? I don't know. But there well, is multiple scenes where there's one boob out. One. one boob. And it's like the focus of the scene is to get that boob out, to get that shirt ripped, to get that one boob out. <laughs> Listen, you but, know, this, this one, like, again, with, with what we're talking about, the B-movie era. You know, yes. we're talking about American International Pictures. American International Pictures was basically the first people to really say it plainly that we make movies for 19-year-old boys <laughs> and that's it. We got to show one boob. Sometimes it's two, maybe one sometimes, but that's what's happening. There's there's a one tit minimum. <laughs> For one tit minimum per scene. Truly. <laughs> and if it goes up from there, that's fine. But we got to get at least one. So there is there is this there is that element of this film where it is very fun and funny in that way as someone looking at it in 2021 to say, like, I like this is funny to me that that was kind of the goal of the scene or part of the narrative structure mm-hmm. was to expose bodies. But I do think that that is not singular to this film and that just in her performance like there is so there's so many scenes in this movie that are just just comedic enough to take the edge off of all the violence that's happening the movie itself opens with like a shakespearean pimp and it's just uphill from there like he's speaking he's enunciating so clearly like he's on stage doing richard the third <laughs> but he's talking about like his sex workers <laughs> and it's only uphill from there but i think the way that coffee kind of comes on the scene and the way that the movie is developed is that you're not quite sure of her at first because she is presented as this kind of strung out sex worker um who is you know you don't know that she's a nurse you don't you find this out as you go along so she's presented in this very sexualized way at first but then she gets up to this apartment and let me when i tell you that she pulls a shotgun out of actually nowhere <laughs> like actually nowhere she goes up there with just her clothes on and then pulls a shotgun out and terrorizes these men into telling her how she can get more information about King George. Then we go back and see her life as a nurse, her boyfriend, the cop, like, you know, he gets assaulted and it just fuels her fire even more to find out what's happening with this King George guy. 
But there is a real narrative arc here about vengeance that was not seen in, for a lot of women for a long time in film. And it's not just vengeance, it's vengeance that goes hand in hand with violence. Mm-hmm. And so I think about, you know, the world we live in now is, of course, violence is everywhere, unfortunately. Um, but I do think about the the impact of that for someone who in her personal life is trying to reclaim that part of herself, that kind of strength in herself. So you get these beautiful scenes and they're funny and great and wonderful. But just to name a few, just like the the hits of this movie, <laughs> I feel like there's one scene where uh, Coffee is supposed to be pretending to be Jamaican, but she sounds straight up British, <laughs> which I just love. She kept that Jamaican accent for like maybe five seconds. And then maybe. <laughs> but to me, it added to the comedy of like, how dumb is this guy that he can't tell she's making this up? And also, this is the same scene where she meets King George, whose jumpsuit is so tight that he has a camel toe, which oh is just God. an impressive feat to be able to have a camel toe when you also have a penis. I just could not understand the 70s at all. Listen, re- real fucking talk. Who... Was that a sexy move for men to wear like a jumpsuit where they took the ring on the zipper and just like pulled it down? That to me grosses me out in a way I never thought I could be grossed out. Like when she's when he's in the bedroom with her and he just undoes his entire jumpsuit. No underwear on underneath, of course. (laughs) But I'm just like that to me is not enticing or sexy in any way, shape or form. That is gross. It's like. Take it off your damn evil Knievel jumpsuit, which is probably musty as hell. Why is this a sexy outfit for a man in the 1970s? I don't understand. If I can see the veins on your scrotum through cloth, you need to take it down a fucking notch. Was that velour? Was that a velour (laughs) jumpsuit he wore? Was that athleisure? I am so right there with you. That jumpsuit move was not the one for me either. I could not get there. But I love it. And then there's always, again, like just these kind of throwaway moments where, um, you know, when we first see this kind of den of iniquity where all these sex workers live and kind of get called out for jobs. There's just a girl on her on her stomach on a couch being like someone is like delicately applying some hydrogen peroxide or alcohol or something because she has sore like open sores on her back damn listen you're fucking way too hard not only too hard but you're fucking in impossible situations that you your body should not be in if you're getting open sores on your back as a result of sex oh my god i mean it's like scary scary dudes in this entire movie like completely so in the movie there's this like final boss guy named Arturo. I think it's his name. He's like King George's like, like essentially, you know, much like many crime films, there's like many different factions. There's like the police working with the criminals, working with the government, working with like the drug kingpins from presumably Italy. I have no idea where they <laughs> they were from. Uh, or maybe a Latin American country. I, you know, it was very strange. And then on top of that, you have Sid Haig, who, by yes. the way, Sid Haig is a le- an, also another cult movie legend. He was in other Jack Hill movies. He was actually in Jackie Brown. He plays yep. the judge. 
but he's a legend. And, you know, he plays like a henchman of this Arturo guy. And I couldn't understand like where, what his ethnicity was. I was like, is he Cuban? Is he Italian? I, is he British Jamaican? Yeah, is he Jamaican? <laughs> Hard to say. But Arturo is terrifying Awful. because you know basically they tell her if you want to get to this guy you know you gotta act like you're an exotic lady from a foreign country because he loves it but also be prepared because he likes to spit on women and hit them and you're just like oh and he does all that like and he just says vile things vile. and racist things and just awful awful things where, of course, when she finally kicks his fucking ass, it is awesome. Yes. Right? You're like, yes, get that guy for the shit that he just pulled in this movie. And the way she gets to him is awesome because she has this, there's this move where you see her putting razor blades in her afro. Yes. And you're like, huh, why is she doing that? Is that just in case for later she needs some protection? No. It's because she knows she's going to have to fight all of the sex workers in his camp, essentially to show off her exoticism. And when somebody grabs her hair, she just slices her fucking hands to ribbons. That scene of the scene of them fighting is kind of a famous scene, especially when <laughs> coffee dumps that giant bowl of salad on Linda Hayes' character. Yes, like yes. that shit cracks me up. Cause I'm like, first of all, who is eating all that salad? That is an industrial size salad bowl at this party full of cokeheads already dressed no one's eating but why is anyone eating a salad and then i just love that she was able to just take the entire thing and just dump it on some woman oh god cracks me up it's it's in a bowl the size of like a car tire it's so good god so i love good. weaponizing salad it's like so funny to me she is weaponizing everything which again is like part of the the joy of watching her be so smart and interesting about the way that she's approaching this move up the ladder to get to king george and she's yeah. you know she's replacing his heroin with powdered sugar and she's doing the most and i think another like comedic scene or something that just really made me laugh and just made me feel like this is such a fun movie um there's a scene where she's preparing for kind of like her last fight and she takes a gun and she puts it in a stuffed lion a stuffed animal that's a lion then she takes the lion and puts it in a pillow you think but it's actually like a crochet purse that's as big as a pillow so it's just like wheels within wheels of how she's going to get to this gun. And then she just puts on this purse and walks out the door and is like, yeah, it's totally normal for me to be carrying this giant purse, this stuffed lion. And you don't need to think about what's inside of any of this stuff. <laughs> it's like the ultimate Matryoshka doll. <laughs> I know. It's like someone's grandma spent like six months on that purse. <laughs> that purse was huge. It was huge. Yeah. And you're right. Because this movie is very, if you, if you want to get down to it, it's almost fucking nihilistic right i mean it's like everybody right. that she loves is damaged by the drug trade you know yes. basically everybody that she loves and is affiliated with that's at all nice to her is basically a scumbag and it ultimately means that she has to fucking kick everybody's ass because it is right. rough i mean like you know she, there's a part in the movie where she's basically been seeing I don't know, like a, a local politician who has ambitions to be the mayor or something like that. And he's a fucking piece of shit, <laughs> as yeah. it turns out. And he's basically like, 
towards the end of the movie, he's trying to woo her back. Once she figures him out mm-hmm. and she figures him out in a really big way, uh, because, you know, basically she gets captured and, you know, she has to escape from these terrible dudes. And he's like, oh, you could just kill her. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, like he's go just... ahead and you can kill her. That's fine. I, I won't feel two ways about it. And she's like this motherfucker. So at the end of it, you can tell like the wheels are turning in her head because he's like, come on. I didn't mean it. I love you. Let's move past this. Let's move past me saying it's okay for these gangsters to kill you. Let's move past it and just let's be together and go to Acapulco or whatever the fuck they were going to (laughs) do. And she's not having it. And, you know, ultimately he turns out even worse than we thought. And it's just like there's like speaking of dolls. I mean, it's just layers upon layers of badness within these characters. And she is essentially the only good person in this movie <laughs> like at the end of it. And even though it's not it's not the focus of the film per se, it's the kind of the, the thing that pushes the narrative, but it's not the focus of the narrative. This is a film that's also really talking about the societal ills and the, the ways that drugs were flooded into these communities and the ways that, you know, when, and when I say these communities, I mean black communities. So she really is dealing with oppression on multiple scales, starting with her physicality, starting with her femininity, and then moving into these other ways. So I think that the more people disappoint her in this film, the more angry she gets because she knows that this world does not have to be this way. And she can clearly see the mechanisms of how it got this bad. So she's taking the law into her own hands in that way because she just can see it. She can see how it affects so negatively everyone in her orbit. Yeah. And honestly, like as much as we love her, like physical capabilities with, you know, her being able to like be in an action film. Right. I mean, she's got you can already tell like at this time, this is early in her career, but you can tell like she's got the skill to act. And there are moments where she's like really emotional in this film and she's she's conveying that very well. And I think it also, again, like we said before for my movie, like. It would be very easy to be like, she's a hot lady with an afro and a gun and she's just shooting men. That would be so easy for us to just right. say that as being the like center of her badassness, which it's a component, not going to lie. Love it. But right. it's also that she's a great actress and she's able to take it. I, you know, to me, I don't think that this is as schlocky as I think people would think, you know? No. It's rough. It's a rough film. Uh, there are moments where it is super fun to watch but at the core of it it's it does speak to a lot of like deep issues that are happening not just with drugs but also just with like black people in the 1970s and women in the 1970s and sort of their roles and like who they were supposed to be to men and i think she's so talented and you can see it from a very early point which i think is why we did this theme ultimately is to be able to see it on both sides, you know? And yeah, to see it bloom over time. Like she had it from the beginning and it's bloomed over time. And I just, yeah, I really love, I just really love her. I think she is a very unique presence um, in the world of acting and just so inherently herself, um, but able to inhabit these wonderful roles. And I also, the last thing, last thing I want to say about coffee, if you've never seen it, go, and even if you have seen it and if you haven't seen it in a while, There is a scene in this film which has one of the best entrances of all time by a character named Harriet. Just go and wait for Harriet to show up. (laughs) And I'm not even going to ruin it for you. (laughs) 
Harriet shows up and I lose my mind every time I watch this movie. I'm not going to lie. I wish that Harriet had her own cinematic universe. I was yeah. I was waiting for it. Never happened. But I'm like, where is Harriet in her outlaw biker film? I need to know this. I need, I need to know where this character goes. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. But it is so fun. And Pam Greer is the goddamn best. And for all you people who are snitch tagging out there, do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, normally don't pester people on the internet. Yeah. Just don't Be pester cool. anyone. Be cool, But, guys. you know, like we love Pam Greer. If people say that to her, I guess we'll we'll just have to we'll sit it. by and let that happen. But don't pester and be annoying. You know no, what I mean? Be be cool. Just say hi to Pam Greer. Say hi to Ellen Cleghorn and <laughs> move it on. We're looking for co- a third and fourth co-hosts for this podcast. Please, <laughs> please mention. <sighs> well, we, I've had so much fun with this. Me I can't too. wait to do this again with this theme, but I'm just enamored of her career. And I just think she, that this was the best way to kick this theme off. Yes. And honestly, if you have any, you know, if you have any feedback, if you have ideas if you have things you just want to say about pam greer or say to us you know email us at i saw what he did pod at gmail if millie was your babysitter at any point <laughs> i'm actually scared of that road a little number <laughs> and you can also reach out to us on our social media uh, we are at i saw pod on both twitter and instagram what do we got coming up next week your films for next week, if you choose to accept them and you better, because it's happening whether you do or not, <laughs> are The Burbs from 1989 and Rear Window from 1954. And as always, we implore you, try to guess the theme. Just try. We dare you. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 